This audio is a presentation of Westminster Orthodox Presbyterian Church in Hamill, South Dakota. For more information about our church, you can visit our website at hamillopc.com. That's H-A-M-I-L-L-O-P-C dot com. Our scripture reading this morning is Genesis chapter 11. Genesis 11, and I will be reading the entire chapter. New Bible. So trying to get it broke in or lay open. Genesis chapter 11. Hear now the reading of God's holy and inerrant and inspired word. Now the whole earth had one language and one speech. And it came to pass as they journeyed from the east that they found a plain in the land of Shinar, and they dwelt there. And they said to one another, Come, let us make bricks and bake them thoroughly. They had brick for stone and they had asphalt for mortar. And they said, Come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower whose top is in the heavens. Let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be scattered abroad over the face of the whole earth. But the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the sons of men had built. And the Lord said, Indeed, the people are one, and they all have one language, and this is what they begin to do. Now nothing that they propose will be withheld from them. Come, let us go down and there confuse their language that they may not understand one another's speech. So the Lord scattered them abroad from there over the face of all the earth, and they ceased building the city. Therefore its name is called Babel, because there the Lord confused the language of all the earth. And from there the Lord scattered them abroad over the face of all the earth. This is the genealogy of Shem. Shem was 100 years old and begot Arphaxad two years after the flood. After he begot Arphaxad, Shem lived 500 years and begot sons and daughters. Arphaxad lived 35 years and begot Selah. After he begot Selah, Arphaxad lived 403 years and begot sons and daughters. Selah lived 30 years and begot Eber. After he begot Eber, Selah lived 403 years and begot sons and daughters. Eber lived 34 years and begot Peleg. After he begot Peleg, Eber lived 430 years and begot sons and daughters. Peleg lived 30 years and begot Ru. After he begot Ru, Peleg lived 209 years and begot sons and daughters. Ru lived 32 years and begot Sarag. After he begot Sarag, Ru lived 207 years and begot sons and daughters. Sarag lived 30 years and begot Nahor. After he begot Nahor, Sarag lived 200 years and begot sons and daughters. Nahor lived 29 years and begot Terah. After he begot Terah, Nahor lived 119 years and begot sons and daughters. Now Terah lived 70 years and begot Abram, Nahor, and Haran. This is the genealogy of Terah. Terah begot Abram, Nahor, and Haran. Haran begot Lot. And Haran died before his father Terah in his native land in Ur of the Chaldeans. Then Abram and Nahor took wives. The name of Abram's wife was Sarai, and the name of Nahor's wife Milcah, the daughter of Haran, the father of Milcah, and the father of Iscah. 
But Sarai was barren. She had no child. And Terah took his son Abram and his grandson Lot, the son of Haran, and his daughter-in-law Sarai, his son Abram's wife. And they went out with them from Ur of the Chaldeans to go to the land of Canaan. And they came to Haran and dwelt there. So the days of Terah were 205 years, and Terah died in Haran. This is the word of the Lord. May he bless it in our hearing. Let us pray. Father, as we come to your word today, I pray that by your Holy Spirit, you would illuminate our hearts to receive it, that we would know who you are, that we would know what you have done for us, and that we would know what we are not able to do apart from you. I pray that you would write this word on our hearts and that through it, you would point us to the salvation that we have in our Lord Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. What is the sin at the root of all sins? What was the sin whereby our first parents fell? What was the nature of their offense against God? Their act was eating the forbidden fruit. But eating fruit in and of itself is not bad. What was their rebellion against God? What transgression of the moral order did they do? What was the lie that the serpent told them? They were told that by eating, they could be like God. That has been the source, the origin, not only of that sin, but every sin that has proceeded from it throughout the history of the world. Every time we sin, we are making a decision that we think our way is better than God's way. We declare that we are sovereign over our lives. We are the lords of our lives, and God is not. We are falling to the serpent's temptation over and over again, thinking that we can stand in God's place and autonomously and independently rule over ourselves. But this is not merely a problem we have as individuals. It can affect families, institutions, whole societies, who can all fall into this trap of the devil, and this has happened all throughout human history. How many civilizations were built around paganism and idolatry? You can look at even the great ancient civilizations. You can look at the Egyptians. They thought that their pharaohs became gods upon their death. The Romans worshipped their emperors until Christianity transformed that empire. Even more recently, for instance, during World War II, the Japanese had an empire cult. They were required to pay a certain amount of worship and homage to the emperor of that empire. In our day, we have the cult of personal autonomy, the cult where we are all free and we all get to do whatever we want and we all have this liberty. We hear slogans such as, my body, my choice, and all the other ways in which we as humans demand to be liberated from God's rule and any other rule that might be over us. This is the problem that is at the root of all sin. This is the problem that has plagued all of human history, the desire for man to be God and to be freed from God's rule. We will see in our text today how this problem did not go away after Noah's flood. 
We saw in the last chapter how the family of Noah and all the subsequent nations were separated along spiritual lines. But this text looks back within that time to when they were not yet separated physically and the collective mindset and activity of the people after the flood. What they sought to do was to prevail against God. I titled this message today, Showdown at Shinar, because as you can probably tell by now, I love a good alliteration. But it also is what is happening in the text, and it's what's happening in the new world after the flood. Man is in war. Man is rebelling. He is essentially picking a fight with God. In our text today, we see man's greatest and most insidious scheme yet, a plan to invade heaven, a plan to rise up to where God is and to conquer him. Now that will go as well as such plans always do. But it will also set the stage for the deepening of this division that we've talked about between the two cities, the city of God, the people of God, and then the city of man the people who are against God. So we will look at the showdown in Shinar in three points. First, we see a rebellion in verses 1 through 4. Man is not content to live under God's rule, and so he attempts to overthrow God. Second, we see a response. What does God do to put down this rebellion? We see this in verses 5 through 9. And third, we see a remnant in verses 10 through 31 in the genealogy section. Though mankind will be defeated and scattered and confused, God remains faithful to his covenant promises of salvation for a particular people. So again, we have rebellion, response, and a remnant. First, we look at the rebellion in verses 1 through 4. So in verse 1, we see that the whole earth had one language. The entire human population at the time was not that far removed from Noah and his family, which obviously they would have shared a common language. They were able to speak to each other. There would be no practical reason thus far to develop new languages. Now back in chapter 10, we saw that each of the peoples had their own languages. This helps us to set where this account in chapter 11 is in the chronology. It does not come after chapter 11. It is set somewhere in chapter 10. After giving the big picture history in chapter 10 in the genealogies, chapter 11 is a snapshot. It looks back early into chapter 10 and describes how we got there. We see that in the time after Noah, all people, all of humanity that was alive on the earth at that time, they journeyed to a plain in Shinar. Now this is an area we have seen and dealt with before. It would be in the lower Tigris and Euphrates River area. In other words, it was a location that would have been associated with where the Garden of Eden once was. In the modern day, this would be the nation of Iraq. And we see that the whole mass of humanity seems to move there and settle there. Now, this mass migration and settlement brings a host of issues. For one thing, it is disobedience to God's post-flood command, his reestablishment of the dominion mandate. 
Mankind was to be fruitful and multiply, which they did. But they were also to fill the earth. They were to spread out. They were to make use of the whole earth, which was not yet happening. It seemed that all of humanity was content to live in one place. Now, this brings its own set of issues. Only so many people can live in one place without depleting its resources. When too many people gather together, you get issues like disease and starvation, water shortages, when there's too big of a population for the land to support. You can still see this in our world today. For instance, there's been a lot of news lately out of the American Southwest about how the Colorado River is drying up and there may not be enough water to go around in several states in the years to come. And this is today with all the technology and advances we have. How much more in the ancient world where they don't have a lot of those things can people not gather all together in one place? They're limited as to how many of them can. Now, another issue is that if all of humanity is living together, the distinction between the city of God and the city of man starts to become blurred. The city of God, the people who worship and serve the true God, are at risk of corruption and apostasy. We'll look at this more in our third point today, but I do want to introduce the idea here. But yet another issue with all of the people living in one place is that the more fallen and sinful people live in one place, the greater sin and wickedness multiplies. And again, we see this in our day. Is there more crime in Chicago or in Hamill? We think it's Chicago. It seems fairly peaceful and quiet around here. Are there more vices and opportunities to sin in Las Vegas or in winter? This is not to say that there's anything inherently better about rural areas, but it is just a simple observable fact that the more people you have living in one place, that means the more people whose sinful inclinations are working together for evil. That is exactly what happens when all of humanity gathers in one place in Genesis 11. In verses 3 and 4, we see that all of humanity accumulated together comes up with a plan. The first part of it we see is that the people devise this new technology of baking bricks. It may well be that this was the first time in the history of the world that such a thing had happened. Remember, they're living on a plane, so they probably don't have access to a lot of stone, since stone usually comes from hills or mountains. They probably don't have a lot of wood, because this would not have been a forested area. So they need to build, and they need something to build with, so they come up with this idea of making bricks from out of the ground. So what we see here, once again, is something we've seen before in Genesis. We see technology and we see culture developing in the city of man. We see common grace allowing humanity to survive in advance, even as it does so apart from God. Now we also see that they are using asphalt for mortar. Now you think about this area, which I said is modern-day Iraq. What does Iraq have? They have oil. So there's naturally occurring oil and tar that can be used for this building. So it helps us to place this biblical account as true history in a real place in the world. 
But what is man doing with these new building technologies and resources? On verse 4, we see the nature of the rebellion against God. Come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower whose top is in the heavens. Man desires to build a monument to his own achievements, to his own abilities, to his own power. Not only that, but building a tower, building it to the heavens, it shows that in a real way, man is not content to live on the earth. Man desires to invade heaven. Man is not content with his own station, but he wants to elevate himself to where God is. Again, it's the first sin and the first temptation all over again. Man wants to be God. Man wants to take God's place. Even in the language, you see man talking like God has talked and will talk again in Genesis using this let us language. God uses this let us language when he creates, and he'll use it again in response to what these people are doing. It is this intra-Trinitarian conversation when God uses it, but it is perverted on the lips of man who want to usurp and overthrow God. Now we get a couple of additional reasons for why they want this tower. They say, let us make a name for ourselves. So this was not an effort that was undertaken for the glory of God. It was done for the glory of man. How often do we in our lives undertake things for our own glory? To make a name for ourselves. To try to be known and try to be remembered. How often do we seek our own advancement? Our own success, our own fame and glory over God's glory. Again, it's just the first sin over and over again. We also see a certain self-awareness. They want to do this, or as they say, lest we be scattered abroad over the face of the whole earth. The people recognize that only so many people can live in one place for so long. They have a limited window of opportunity to do this thing they have conspired to do. They know that despite all their best efforts, only so many people will be able to live in Shinar for so long. And so while they have everyone together, they want to use and consolidate their power and ability to make something for which they will be remembered, something for which they will be regarded as strong and powerful, perhaps for which they would even be regarded as divine. Now, it is very possible, and I would say even likely, that this tower that they built took the form of a ziggurat, one of those stair-step pyramids that we see ruins of all over the world. It helps to explain, I think, why we see them all over the world. What could account for seeing pyramids like this, not only in the Middle East, as this one was, but in places like Central and South America, or in Japan, or other places all over the world where it seems these structures seem to pop up that follow this stair-step pattern. Could it be that despite all the speculations of modern science about how people in the world got where they did, that maybe, just maybe, all the people in the world lived in one place trying to build something like this, and then when they scattered, they tried to build them again? Also, a ziggurat's design and what we know about them fits well with the purposes stated in this text. They're built like a staircase 
to show how man will climb and reach God. This is an attempt to build a stairway to heaven. For man to enter heaven and be equal with God or even to usurp or overthrow God from his rightful place. It is as though man believes he can defeat God and rule over himself apart from God. So what does God do about this? Well, this brings us to our next point. After rebellion, we come to God's response in verses 5 through 9. We read in verse 5 that the Lord came down to see the city and the tower. Now, as we often see in language in the Bible describing God, it's analogical language. God is spirit. He doesn't have a physical form. He's not limited by time and space. He doesn't actually have to come down from somewhere else to see what man is doing. He's all-knowing. He's omnipresent. He didn't have to make an appearance to check out what was going on. But what we do see here is that God reveals himself to man. He appears and interacts and speaks about this thing that man has done. And that is described as God coming down. Now, it does show another important fact in our text. While man has built this thing, he has done this impressive work, it has failed in its ultimate purpose. No matter how big the city gets, no matter how tall the tower gets, it doesn't make it to heaven. It doesn't get to God. God still has to come down to it. Man has tried to reach God, but God cannot be reached by man. God must condescend to man for man to have any knowledge of him, to have any relation to him. This is what is said in the opening of chapter 7 of the Westminster Confession. It says, The distance between God and the creature is so great that although reasonable creatures do owe obedience unto him as their creator, yet they could never have any fruition of him as their blessedness and reward but by some voluntary condescension on God's part, which he hath been pleased to express by way of covenants. God's covenantal condescension is the only way that man can know God. There's no way for man to know God without God setting the terms of the relationship. Man always tries to reach God or rule God or replace God, but all of it is in vain. God is transcendent of us. He is far beyond us. We cannot even begin to understand just how far beyond us he is. And these people in Shinar, they do not understand either. Most people throughout the history of the world have not understood this. Many civilizations built these ziggurats. They worshipped false gods on them. They even went so far as to commit gross acts of sexual immorality and human sacrifice on them, believing that by something they did, some effort they made, some power of their own, they would reach God. But all of it was vain. Even now, people believe that they can reach God under their own power, by their own wisdom, by their own knowledge, by their own philosophy, by the goodness of their works. But all of this, too, is vain. God can only be known, not because we can ever reach Him, 
but because he comes down to us. So how does God handle this situation in Shinar? God acknowledges what man has accomplished. Indeed, the people are one and they all have one language. And this is what they begin to do. Now, nothing that they purpose to do will be withheld from them. Essentially, God acknowledges that man has become too powerful in this unified state. Now, it is not as though man is too powerful for God. God is sovereign over man. He's sovereign over life and death and being. But man has become too powerful for his own good. What has man done with this common language and place and culture and civilizational advance? He's used it to rebel against God. He's resorted to idolatry, to paganism, to the worship of self. Man has multiplied evil on the earth. So in light of this, what happens next in verse 7, it is not so much a punishment or a punitive act, it is actually a merciful act. When God says, let us go down and there confuse their language. Now the plural here, as I mentioned before, it does a similar thing that other plurals we see in Genesis do. This is intra-Trinitarian speech by God. But it's also in direct opposition to the let us statement of man. God is saying, oh, you think you can do this? Well, let, let us, let the triune God show you what will be done. The purpose, though, of confusing language and scattering man, it is to restrain man's wickedness. If man is allowed to continue in this state, there's only more rebellion and sin and death. There would be a repeat of the pre-flood situation where man will multiply wickedness so greatly that man will either destroy himself or have to be destroyed by God. So God confuses the languages and separates the people ultimately to preserve and save mankind from his own wickedness. The language is being confused. The people are no longer able to live and work and function together. So they do what they should have been doing all along. They scatter, they separate out on the face of the earth. We saw described in chapter 10 all the names and places in which this happened. The people spread out. They became all the nations of the earth. Because mankind cannot function in a unified way, the building of the city ceases. It will go no further. We also see that this city gets a name, Babel. It is called this because it is the city where the languages of the earth were confused. But it is also a predecessor to another very important biblical name, Babylon. Babylon is a city of confusion and a city of rebellion against God. And Babylon, in many texts in Scripture, is a representative of the world system of sinful humanity, of all the forces of the world united against God. Last week, we looked at 1 Peter chapter 5, and one of the things that Peter wrote in his parting words was that the church in Babylon was greeting the other churches. Now, Peter was probably actually writing from Rome, but the point that he was making is that the church in the face of opposition, the church in the face of the world and all of its devices still went on. It still existed in the face of all of that. 
In Revelation, it is Babylon. It is the city of man united against God that ultimately falls and is destroyed in the Lamb's final conquest. While this action against Babel in Genesis 11 sets the stage for the world to come, it also foreshadows the closing of the curtain on the world. The city of God ultimately will prevail over the city of man once and for all. This brings us to our third and final point. After the rebellion and the response, we come to a remnant in verse 10 through the end of the chapter. We have seen in Babel how the city of man rose up but was defeated before God. But what about the city of God? Where was it? Were there any left who worshipped and served the true God? We did see before how Noah blessed Shem and God's covenant promises were to continue through Shem. If all the world was gathered in one place in an act of rebellion against God, we might be inclined to wonder if the plan had failed. But after this focus on the city of man in the opening of the chapter, Moses pivots to describe the continuation of the city of God. In verses 10 through 26, we see this genealogy of Shem. We won't look at it in too much detail because there are many names here that really don't bear any significance beyond their appearance here. But there are some things here that we need to note. First, we notice that after the flood, lifespans of humans begin to shorten considerably. Noah was the last man recorded to live 900 years, where it seemed that that happened fairly regularly before the flood. Shem only lives about 600 years. Our facts add his son lives 465 years, and then by the time we get to Terah, at the end of the line, he only lives 205 years. Not only does the flood radically change the geography and geology of the world, but it changes people. It changes the way people live in the world. It shortens the lifespans of men. We don't know exactly what causes this, but it does seem to be, just like the separation of people at Babel, something of a merciful act, because the longer man lives, the more sinful he can become. Now, second, we should note that the line of promise continues through our Arphaxad. But if you look back to chapter 10, verse 22, you see that our Arphaxad is not the first son of Shem who is listed. He was the third out of five. He was probably not the firstborn. If the genealogy was in order, this would indicate that that was the case. Our Arphaxad was the third son. Now, in ancient times, it was typical for the greater blessings to pass on to the firstborn sons. But what we see here is something of a pattern established that will repeat often throughout the history of God's people. That God chooses who he chooses regardless of birth and regardless of human categories. God is not a respecter of persons. He will later choose Isaac, not his older brother Ishmael. He'll choose the younger and weaker Jacob over Esau. He chooses Judah, who was not the firstborn son of Jacob. He'll choose David, the youngest son of Jesse. So often throughout Scripture, God chooses the younger sons, the weaker, it seems, people, the lesser things to rule over the greater things. God will work where and through whom He pleases, regardless of what the world has to say about it. 
And then in verses 27 through 32, we see the last genealogy section we will see for a while. We start to see some familiar names. We see that Terah begot Abram, as well as Nahor and Haran. We also see that Nahor has a son named Lot. We see that they are in Ur of the Chaldeans. This would be not terribly far from Babel. It would be in those lands east of Canaan, east of what would become Israel. We also see that Abram has a wife, Sarai, who is barren. Essentially, the main characters are now in place for what will unfold over the next several chapters. What we see in this is that from the line of Shem, as was promised, has come the remnant of God's people. Abram will be Abraham. He will be the father of many nations, but particularly he will be the father of Israel. He will be the father of the chosen people through whom the Messiah will ultimately come. Now we also see in verse 31 that Terah begins a journey westward from Ur of the Chaldees towards Canaan. We don't see why he did it. We don't know what compelled him to do this. We don't know if he was told to do it, as Abram would later be told, or if something else provoked him. But it is providential because God ultimately purposes that Abram would go to Canaan. And God would promise that land to him. For whatever reason, at the time, Terah did not make it. Instead, he and his family stop in Haran, and Terah dies there. The promise does not yet come. The promise will come. It will continue on in Abram, which we will see in chapter 12 and thereafter. What we have seen here in the latter part of chapter 11 is that God does not forget his covenant promises. Though once again, great corruption and rebellion have taken hold on the earth. Though again, most of humanity has rejected God and not known or worshipped him, God has preserved a remnant. God has preserved a people for his name. A covenant line through which he will ultimately accomplish his redemptive purposes. Though true faith and true worship would appear to be all but snuffed out, it is still there. It remains. It continues to be passed down through one family line through which the rest of redemptive history will unfold. Though the city of God often looks weak, it is often persecuted, it can even nearly look snuffed out by the prevailing evil and rebellion in the city of man, it will never go away completely. God will always have and preserve a people for his name. But what are we to do with this text today? We have seen in it the rebellion of man. Fallen and sinful man so often chooses to rebel against God to try to overthrow and replace God with a God in his own image. Man failed in Shinar and will always fail to do that. There can be no fellowship between God and man by man trying to ascend to God. God has to come down to man. So has God come down? Yes. God came down not destroying man as he did in the flood or opposing man as he did at Babel, but God came down as a man in our Lord Jesus Christ, descendant of Shem, descendant of Abram, 
the promised seed of the woman from all the way back in Genesis 3. Jesus did not rebel against God. He was the only man who ever lived a perfect, sinless life. He fulfilled all the righteousness that we were lacking so that this righteousness might be imputed, might be credited to us, that God might account us as righteous and so that we might have fellowship with him. And Jesus suffered and died at the hands of sinful man so that he might bear the penalty, the punishment, the wrath of God that we all as fallen and sinful and rebellious people deserved. The God-man died so that we might live. And on the third day, he rose from the dead, conquering and defeating death forever. Whatever man purposes in this life to save himself, to glorify himself, to somehow climb the ladder up to God, is doomed for failure. Life and hope and salvation are only found in the God who came down in Jesus Christ. If you are trusting in yourself, your own good works, your own religious acts, your own power and strength, you are in rebellion against God and He will not accept you. But if you repent of your sins and believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, you will have forgiveness of sins and true life and true fellowship with God. Do not look to rise up to God. Look at where God came down, for only there will you live. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for this word that you have given us. We thank you for your Son, our Lord Jesus Christ, who did come down to us, for we had no way to reconcile ourselves to God, to climb our way to God. Christ came down and lived the perfect life we could not, suffered the death that we deserved, and through him we can have forgiveness of sins and everlasting life. I pray that all here gathered today would believe this gospel and be faithful to take it to the lost and dying world that thinks that it can climb its own way to God. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this audio presentation of Westminster Orthodox Presbyterian Church in Hamill, South Dakota. For more information, you can visit our website, hamillopc.com. That's H-A-M-I-L-L-O-P-C dot com.